Welcome back. Welcome in another episode of Country Roads Confidential here at Earsports.com, part of the 24-7 Sports Network. Special guest today, we've upgraded from Chris Anderson to Chris Hummer, one of our national writers at 24-7. Chris, welcome in. Um, we decided we were going to make this a COVID-free podcast, or we wanted to, but it's virtually impossible. Um, and this has consumed everybody's life that they cover college football, college sports right now, too. And you have the, I don't know, mile-high view of this because you have to try to keep up with national trends as well as how it affects you know everybody locally here, too. Kind of a broad question to start, but how how disorienting is it? How busy does the work keep you trying to, you know, trying to tell the story of 130 teams and how they're affected by one story arc? Yeah, and first I want to say, like, very big shoes today to fill in for Chris, and I'll, I'll do my best. But it's it's been wild, man. Like, I feel like I was talking to somebody earlier today, just, like, who's in the media, about what it's been like to cover this offseason. And my thought was, like, you know those, like, really, like, kind of moderate runs you go on, maybe three to four miles, and then you're just trying to get a good workout in, but you end up stopping, like, five or six times a long way to kind of mm-hmm. check your phone. That's the normal college football offseason. Like, there's some time to meander, get to work on a couple projects, maybe play around a golf on a Friday afternoon. It's been nothing like that this offseason. COVID's been kind of all-consuming, and it feels like the news hasn't stopped. And every conference is treating this so differently. Um, there seems to be breakdowns in communications, rumors and innuendo. Like every day, it's just been a it's been a really weird off season, and uh, in a lot of ways, we're really lucky to cover it. But it's it's been a mile a minute since basically uh, March Madness got cam- canceled in March, which feels like five years ago, doesn't it? And it's five yes. months ago. Yeah, it's Hard wild. I, I'm watching like watching the NBA and kind of the NHL on TV today. And it feels a little bit March Madness, like March Madness. But then I have to remind myself that was like five months ago since everything kind of got kicked off and started. Like it seems like COVID came so fast and it hasn't it hasn't really slowed down at all. And college football decision makers have been stumbling and bumbling since trying to figure it out. And we're frankly still doing that a couple weeks away from the season with uh, quite a few teams getting started the first weekend in September. Uh, us college football writers, we we sometimes educate ourselves on, you know, plays, terminology, you know, what is a four eye, what is a legal formation, um, new coaches, you kind of get up to speed with their backgrounds and all that. I'm not saying you're going back to medical school here, but are you close to mastering epidemiology and virology? <laughs> I think my college professors would tell you I'm nowhere close to that. Uh, my college roommates were both engineers and one was a Two of them were engineers, and one of them was a biology major, and they used to show me some of their science homework, and I would just have my eyes glaze over. But yeah, I know what a PCR test is now, for example, um, which is kind of the standard testing protocol. I understand what mitocarditis is and quite a few other things I didn't beginning of March, and I guess that's kind of the fun of being a journalist. You get to learn things you don't really know a lot about, but I, I certainly could have done without five months of medical jargon, but uh, here we are. I can't wait to get back to a 3i technique or uh breaking down a cover three formation or something like that but for now it's um testing swabs and um kind of backlogs for us well listening to your answer there if you know about myocarditis and you know about different testing methods that qualifies you to be a big 10 president (laughs) you know i don't really think i want that heat right now man like it's a it's a tough life for the big 10 presidents they're just getting asked every day like if they actually voted 
Kevin Warren is America's favorite pinata right now. He's got players revolting against him, essentially. They're going to have a protest in front of the Big Ten offices on Friday, as I understand it, with some Iowa parents and some Ohio State parents. So it's it's fun times. Let's, um, let's go there. It's national, and it's the topic of the day and of the past week for sure. But the Big Ten, um, it's a giant in college sports, college football, certainly. But some of the biggest names in higher ed and in college sports are in the Big Ten. It's one thing for the MAC and the Mountain West, even the Pac-12, to say can't do it. I think that the Big Ten, its ultimate decision was not surprising because it had been rumored for so long. But if you step back, I don't know, a month ago, and you envision a world where that the Big Ten says, "Uh uh-uh, and no one follows it, it's very surprising. But this has become a thing now where it seems like forces are pushing this to overturn it. You have players doing petitions with hundreds of thousands of signatures. You got dads flying to confront the commissioner uh, outside of his office, I guess. I wrote Sunday in kind of a, a weekly column that we do, and I just asked readers, where would you put the odds that Big Ten and or Pac-12 teams are on the field this week? And I'm not sure that's going to happen, but that seems to be what a lot of people want internally and externally. Um, what do we have here? Besides a mess, do we have a situation that it's cement they're not playing right now? Or is there so much time between now and the beginning of the season that maybe they could be on the field and maybe that's a conversation? Maybe there are forces that are going to overturn this and turn, turn this into an even bigger mess and bigger calamity than it is. Yeah, I, I would put the odds at uh, about the same as me running a sub five second 40 here in the next Ooh. month. Like maybe, maybe if I train and I have the right day and I'm just like feeling amazing, I can come close, but it's just, it's not going to happen. And like, unless something really significant changes and we might get into this with some of the saliva testing that's been put forward. And even that I think is a long shot. Like they're not going to kind of backpedal on this decision. Um, when you make a decision for safety purposes, it really kind of goes against reason to go back on that just because like testing protocols have been updated like testing at the end of the day is a way to monitor and sur- like surveil but it doesn't actually make the practice of the sport any safer and i don't think the presidents want that heat for kind of going back on their decisions even if it's kind of a popular one because then they just put themselves up the questions about liability that they were so worried about in the first place. So I, I think it's just it's it would shock me if the Big Ten or the Pac-12 went back on this idea, and the conversations surrounding it, while really interesting and great content, just don't seem that realistic. But I mean, good for good for Justin Fields and players like him for using their voice. Like I think this is a pretty profoundly uh, profoundly altered offseason in terms of players kind of using their platform and we're going to see that push forward it's just it's not going to change the big Ten's mind we'll get back to that in a second but i cover the big 12 you live in big 12 country in austin texas um i think that as surprising as the big 12's decision may have been perhaps the big 12 doing what it did was no less shocking um it's been a sheepish conference in the past sometimes not ambitious in its actions sometimes more of a follower than a leader what did you think and what was the response to the people that you interact with when the Big 12 said, hey, we're, well, actually, the Big 12 said we're not going to cancel, but effectively said we're not going to do what people thought we were going to do. We're not going to do what other people have done, um, and we're going to try to see this through. I think to a lot of people that was that was kind of brow arching. Yeah, it was. it's interesting, and I don't. nobody really considers the Big 12 the pace setter in college athletics in any way. Mm-hmm. In fact, they kind of get beat up on quite a bit um, nationally. But I, 
of all of all of the leagues, I actually think the Big Twelve was the most prudent about the way they've kind of gone about this, at least at least in the last couple of weeks, and just the way they've approached this. They didn't say we're gonna. I mean, they did say we're gonna try to play football, but they're not like guaranteeing anything. What they said was we're gonna continue to evaluate our options and make sure it's medically safe to play. And until that somebody says it's not medically safe to play, we're gonna push forward. And on a day in which it would have been very easy to be influenced by the um, Pac-12 and the Big Ten. The Big 12 kind of stuck to its guns. It listened to its medical experts. And it moved forward at a pretty measured pace. Um, releasing the schedule the next day was interesting. And I think that's a pretty definitive statement about the league's intentions. And don't get me wrong, like it was not a 100% vote for the Big 12 to move forward, there was some like pull, pushing and pulling within the league about what's the prudent thing to do moving forward and if it's safe. But at the end of the day, the league presented a unified front and it opted to kind of push forward until it can't. And I have no idea if until it can't means uh, at the end of the Big 12 championship game or it means after week three with 17 outbreaks across the country, if that happens, just hypothetical. But like the Big 12 led in a lot of ways in this circumstance. And I think... That's a credit to Bob Holsby and the athletic directors in the league for really kind of taking a measured approach here when it would have been very easy to panic. I thought it was interesting and perhaps smart that they did not come out with parameters where if they said, if we have X outbreaks, X number of people affected, X number of teams with X number of people affected, we can't go forward because that may trigger something that isn't necessary. Who knows? And I think that that's an issue within the season as to when do you cancel, postpone, delay, whatever, a game. There has to be parameters for that, I think. And I thought they would apply that logic to starting the season. They didn't. And I think that's smart because, as you said, it's a more prudent approach where you have time. And, for example, if you set those thresholds and you hit them right now, you might be clear by the 1st of September. So perhaps that wouldn't be a good idea. And I think you're right. Like, I mean, that's a bit surprising when you think about making a decision. But by not putting pen to paper there by not putting something out that's definitive you kind of give yourself some wiggle room i think that's a bit more pragmatic than i expected but it does make some sense too um which leads me to this now too what does have to happen what can't happen for the big 12 the acc the sec the american and whom else is playing i'm trying to remember here oh we got the sun belt Belt, USA, conference usa new conference usa so you still have six that are in there but I don't know. Again, not specific parameters, but what has to happen? What can't happen for us to have college football in 2020? I don't. That's the thing. Like, I don't. I don't really know if any of us knows. Like, I think like three months ago, had the North Carolina situation happened, in which they cleared all their uh, essentially regular students off campus and left their football players because of a large outbreak. The outcry would have been incredible against the university for just leaving students in a situation like that. But like, the situation's changed the last three months. And I think North Carolina is, in a lot of ways, is being applauded. And many people think football players are safer on campus than they'd be anywhere else. But I think if you have 25 North Carolinas and whatever, I think we have, what, 76 remaining schools, something like that. Mm-hmm. If you have 25 North Carolinas, then I think you're you're going to be in trouble. And I think the worst case scenario for college football, more than anything, is to have a baseball situation kind of occur in which you have an entire team essentially suffer an outbreak and have the season paused for weeks at a time. And if that happens at a couple places and the schedule's completely altered, then I think public sentiment and public um, outcries are going to come pretty strong that these players are forced to play through a pandemic in which they're not compensated. And 
it's it's kind of surprised me in a lot of ways how vocal players have been uh, with their desire to play. Like, I get it. Like, playing sports is awesome. Like, I love just playing pickup basketball at the Y, and I would probably do that in times it's unsafe, too. Like, I've messed up my hamstring multiple times just playing basketball for too long. But for themselves, but for athletes to kind of provide that cover for leagues, I think is really important. But at the end of the day, it's just going to come down to how much how comfortable presidents are uh, in these situations. Uh, we saw the Pac-12 and Big Ten presidents say they weren't comfortable at all with moving forward with sports. Um, I think the remaining leads are a little more liberal, not only because liberal in a liberal, not in a political sense. Yeah. But Don't go there, Chris. Yeah. yeah, in the sense <laughs> of the word. But the remaining presidents um, in these leagues have more wiggle room based on kind of what their constituents and what their student body population wants and their kind of fans want. And if they can complete the season and make some money, they're going to try. I just, I'm kind of rambling a little bit here. I just, it really depends on the situation, each individual school. It only takes one or two dominoes to fall uh, for this thing to all fall apart. Like it's going to, everything's going to have to go pretty perfectly, but I'm just hopeful uh, that it kind of manages to. Yeah, it feels a little bit like Monty Python, where if you have no arms and legs left, you really can't go forward <laughs> until, you, until you reach that point. I mean, just keep going, you know. Um, Kevin Warren, you mentioned um, I've been I've been mystified by some of the things that leaders have said. For example, like four weeks ago, they started subcommittees to figure out things about testing policies, um, what they're going to do with eligibility, what they're going to do for a player's clock, his five year clock. What happens if a player decides to opt out? What are his luxuries? What is he able to uh, take advantage of as a student athlete? These are all things that are still being decided. And I get prickly about that because I think that's probably March or April, maybe May stuff. It shouldn't be August stuff when, you know, that should be resolved and part of your thinking moving forward. It shouldn't be figuring that out and then thinking after it. So anyways, my, my point here is that there's a lot of people you could blame for different reasons. And there's a lot of explanations that, you know, you might let some people off the hook. I do not want to be the guy that um, defends the NCAA, but like there are certain parts of me that says, this is kind of what the Big 12 and the SEC and the ACC and the Pac-12 and the Big 10 wanted. They wanted to be separate and to make their own decisions, and here they are, and it's been hard. Um, but also the NCAA kind of does have a responsibility to be a beacon in the dark, which is certainly a dark time. Um, best as you can tell, what's fair comment and criticism here? Because there's a lot of it, and sometimes there's so much of it, we whip it up and we start throwing it around and everybody gets flattered. But um, some of it's unfair, too. What's inbounds? What's out of bounds? In terms of the NCAA, I think I think it's important for people to understand, and um, you kind of made this point already, that they have very little um, actual control over the FBS. Um, it dates, it's going to probably bore people, but essentially it dates back to a Supreme Court case in the 80s that took away postseason rights from the NCAA and awarded them to the universities and conferences themselves. Since then, the NCAA has had a overarching influence on college football, but not, no actual like power to order anything to occur, um, except for its like day-to-day kind of um, ties to like the Division I Board of Governors, the highest level of um, kind of NCAA administrations who are made up of some FBS administrators but other than that, like Mark Emmert can't really tell college football just to get its crap together and just make it work. But as you said, they are kind of a guiding light. They are the person that college athletics should be able to look to as kind of a calming influence or kind of a person who 
leads without necessarily ordering and kind of just provide some guidance and structure to the body as a whole. We haven't we haven't seen that. Um, Mark Emmert's kind of sat off to the sidelines um, this offseason. I guess I can't really blame him. He doesn't really have the power to make anybody do anything, but it would I've had so many coaches and so many administrators this offseason ask why hasn't the NCA stepped in? Why hasn't the NCA led on stuff like eligibility and testing protocols and things the like? And it's just it's there's just there's been calls like it's just led to stuff like calls for college football czars and everything else. And like it just makes you think like there's a serious power vacuum in college athletics and somebody could step in and fill it and kind of maybe uh, wrangle in some of the chaos at least. And that should be Mark Emmert's job in a lot of ways. And it just hasn't happened. And I had somebody I had a Big 12 athletic director earlier this offseason tell me um to the effect that there are a lot of big egos in college athletics, and it'll be very interesting to see who ultimately gets to call the shots this offseason. And I think what's happened is you had a lot of big egos and nobody ever really determined who gets to call the shots. And what happened is the league started pulling different directions and nobody was there to corral them. And that's where I think you can place some of the blame on NCAA, but it's it's just as much on the conferences themselves. Like they're kicking the can down the road as far as they can and hoping it works, which is really admirable. And I like admirable is the wrong word, which makes sense when you consider all the money that's kind of there on the line. But when you're just talking about like, these are the lives and well, like livelihoods of these student athletes, like there's a lot of responsibility there. And I don't, I don't know if anybody's come out of this off season looking particularly rosy and not kind of light. Let's stick there. Um, Maybe athletes have come out looking rosy and who better to, understand and um, pursue the best interest of student athletes than actual student athletes. I'm, I'm looking at like, this is kind of nerdy storyboard here on my desk about things we talk about on podcasts and early <laughs> pandemic talking about how it would just take one school, one conference to be uncomfortable with testing protocol and they could really foul up a return to play. And then we get into protesting and, Black Lives Matter and social and racial justice and how they could have their voice and they could maybe impact social change. Um, Conferences are registering student athletes to vote. And we've seen in a handful of instances, uh, most notably probably at Mississippi State, but also Oklahoma State, West Virginia, UCLA, a variety of schools where student athletes have raised, you know, issues about their coaches or oversight, medical, something like that, where they saw a bad situation, try to make it better. Even now, we see the We Want to Play. We've seen Trevor Lawrence. We've seen Justin Fields most recently kind of assert themselves here. Um, there's going to be a lot different about college sports moving forward. For example, the Power Five may split. Um, maybe they have their own thing going on. I don't know. There's going to be a legacy written after this. The, this, this whole episode now is writing stories that are going to be finished years and years from now, too. But I'm wondering some sort of consolidation organization of power and activism. I'm not sure what the word is. There's probably a word that begins with you that maybe you want to get into that people are reluctant to use sometimes, but what, what do you think comes out of students and this momentum that they've developed and advanced in the past? It's been more than five months, but certainly in the five months, it's been more recognizable. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I follow the NBA pretty closely just as a fan. And I think the last couple of years, uh, you could probably label it the power, like the player empowerment era. Mm-hmm. Um, not only have players seized more of kind of the power and uh, that sport, um, they've 
really made change happen in a lot of ways and how the sport is run and kind of how they take control of their own destiny in terms of free agency. And while college athletics doesn't have the free agency to kind of lean on or something like that to that effect, it does have players often put in a position where they're asked to do something. And there are a lot of concerns about the sport and the way they go about doing it. And we've certainly seen that paradigm shift the last couple of months. I don't know. I don't know what it is particularly. I think it probably stems in a lot of ways from the social change we saw come out of um, the time after George Floyd's death. But in the time since, as you said, we really have seen a profound change in the way student athletes um, kind of address issues they're concerned about. And I think eventually what we're going to see is another push for that U word, like you said, a union. Um, if y'all remember in 2014, Northwestern attempted to unionize. Um, that was ultimately struck down by the National Labor Relations Board. Um, they chose not to rule on it, uh, which essentially kind of sent them away. But they chose not to rule on it for the idea of competitive balance. Essentially, Northwest, this is probably in the weeds a little bit, but Northwestern was granted, uh, Northwestern athletes were granted the status of employees by the Chicago uh, National Labor Relations Board. Um, so in that instance, they were uh, named employees. And they went to the NLRB with the argument that they should be able to unionize as the fact, because there are essentially two hurdles for athletes to unionization. It's being dubbed an employee and working for a private organization. The NLRB said no, because Northwestern would might have had a competitive advantage as a union over public schools um, in the Big Ten, for example, that don't have that option. But moving forward, we've seen with the We Want to Play movement um, that there's been threats of starting a player association of some sort, which is essentially a backdoor way and a nicer way of saying a union. And if it gets to that point, there are thoughts from legal experts that under kind of a different path, players could push for unionization status and show that not only are they members like employees of their school, they're members of conferences in the NCAA, uh, which are private organizations creating a path for a union to kind of occur. Um, this is a lot to kind of digest in like a 60 second period. But one of Stanford's players, Dylan Bowles, was part of that call a couple weeks ago that sparked the We Want to Play movement that Trevor Lawrence famously tweeted about. And he told me that a union is certainly not off the table moving forward for college athletes. And I think that's just one of many ways we're going to see things change over the next uh, 48 months, or I'm sorry, 24 months or so, especially with NLI coming up at the end of the year and many other kind of important uh, landmark uh, instances like transfer eligibility and everything else. It does seem that amateurism is more of a uh, boy, it's just the wrong word. It seemed like people see it as more of a sham now than before because of the um, the remote learning, the online only learning, and not having kids on campus, but also forcing your student athletes on campus so they can make money for the school. It just seems like that the secret's out in the open right now. We have to address it. This seems like the right time to do something. Yeah, I think the charade of student-athletes seems like it's up. Um, the NCAA has been brought in front of Congress and been taken to task by senators this year. They've been ripped on social media by all parties. They've had Pac-12 players even ask for 50% of the league's revenue um, as a result. Um, I think there is middle ground. I'm not one of those people 
that thinks the NCAA system is entirely broken. At the end of the day, when these athletes are getting cost of attendance, um, in a lot of cases, anywhere from $250,000 to $400,000 throughout their four to sometimes six-year careers, and that's not invaluable. Um, I'm still paying off student loans, uh, for example. But like the idea that an athlete can't profit off their name, image, and likeness seems ridiculous in 2020. And until common sense issues like that are solved, I think you're going to see public perception of the NCAA and the system just kind of have a pinata stick taken at them the entire time. It's just, it's not good. And I think people are kind of seeing through that charade, as you mentioned. Charade's a better word. You're, you're more of a wordsmith than I am. Sham is probably too strong. Charade seems like it's better. A little bit of fun and games, right? Sham yeah, seems yeah, like yeah. it's a bit, yeah. Uh, want to talk some Big 12 football? Sure, man. I'm always happy to talk football. Yeah, it's a nice change. Since we weren't going to talk about COVID, and we spent 24 minutes talking about it. But in a, a more pragmatic way, I think, though. So that's good. But the actual games could be interesting this year. I guess just the initial question, and this is fun to ask people who cover from all different approaches and angles and distances, but what type of season are we going to have here? Because I think you could be wondering about the quality of play, surprise teams. Can a team get hot, you know, um, like a hot goalie or something like that? There's so many unknowns that go out beyond the traditional constructs of football that it could make this unruly, fun, different, fluky. I have no idea, but what's your, what's your feel for what to expect in the conference? I think fluky is an excellent word. I just think, I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know what team it's going to happen to, but I just think this year we're going to see some results that are really zany uh, just because we don't know who's going to be available every week. Um, new coaches have not had time to install schemes at all. They're just now kind of getting on the field to kind of work on that stuff. And at a school like Texas, which is being picked second in the Big 12, um, Chris Ash and Mike Yurishic have had, I think, a total of three practices so far to kind of right. actually install their schemes on the field. So that's a huge question mark. But I think at the end of the day, like, it's going to come down to experience. I had a coach tell me, I think, like last week, that they're going to have to be a little more simple this year. They're going to have to get more people prepared because you don't really know who you're going to have week to week. You've got to have your backups ready to kind of step in at a moment's notice because you don't know who's going to test positive for COVID-19. And it will eventually happen. And simplicity is also going to lend itself to maybe more upperclassmen playing than normal. I think teams with a deep stable of upperclassmen who have been around um, kind of their scheme and their system for a long time are going to be greatly advantaged young players while talented who might usually see the field are maybe going to be a little disadvantaged. But I, even part of that, like it comes down to like what the red shirt rules looks like. We don't, we don't know, which is crazy. I'm not thought from the season exactly what the red shirt rules going to look like. And maybe there's a scenario in which you strategically work your red shirt freshman in for, or freshman in for depth purposes, like five times a year out of the 10 games you play. Cause it's going to be 50% of games played. Like, we really don't know. And I'm saying I don't know a lot because, like, I don't think anybody does. I just think it's going to be kind of wild. At the end of the day, I think talent's going to win out as it normally does. But it, it would not shock me a bit if we see a Georgia lose a game we would never expect them to. Like, I can see South Carolina versus Georgia, which was a South Carolina upset uh, last year, happening a lot across the country on every level and in every conference because, like, it's just going to be wild. And home field's going to be, like, entirely nerfed. Mm with the way this is. So it's just, it's going to be a very odd season all around. We've talked on on this podcast, a bunch um, different tiers in the big 12, where you definitely had your top. You definitely had in some order, Oklahoma, Oklahoma state, Texas, Iowa state. I don't think there's any arguing that after that five through 10, 
and maybe specifically eight, nine, and ten, you could pretty much be surprised by nothing at the end of the season there too. Um, but what we're talking about here, one or two of those four is likely to tumble, and then somebody from that five through ten, and I don't know if eight through ten is is too bold, but somebody is going to make a move here. Um, is there a team in the top that you worry about? for some of the dynamics you just mentioned. And is there one or two teams in that five through 10 or even that eight through 10 that you say, you know, if, if things work out right, this could be a team at the end that you say, huh, didn't see that coming. Yeah, the interesting thing is I actually think the team I'm a little worried about right now. And this, this is crazy given that I've won five straight big 12 championships. And I have, I have issues with all of the teams at the top of the conference this year is Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Like, not only, and I know we all kind of expect Lincoln Riley to be a quarterback factory, and I think Spencer Rattler is going to be fine, but Oklahoma is going to be down to its essentially fourth string running back coming into the year after Trey Sermon left from Andre Stevenson's suspended, and um, their lead running back just opted out, or Kennedy Brooks just opted out for the year. Um, they're going to have very unproven talent on the outside at receiver. Charleston Rambo is their leading returning receiver. Um, Jadon Hazelwood towards ACL or towards Achilles or it is yeah. offseason. So that's going to factor in. And that defense is going to be down its two best pass rushers for at least the first couple games with Jalen Redmond likely being suspended after an offseason DUI and um, Perkins being suspended last year for failing a drug test uh, ahead of the bowl game. And when you consider they're already losing Kenneth Murray, uh, arguably one of the best defensive players in the country, and they lost Caleb Kelly early in fall camp to a season-ending injury as well. Like, they're really, there are some big question marks at linebacker. And you kind of put all that together in a season in which there's no real runway to kind of lead up to the season and kind of get into it. And I think Oklahoma's pretty susceptible, at least compared to years past. So I think, I actually think the conference for those teams right below them is pretty wide open. But if you're talking about a team that can kind of surprise from that five to eight slot, I think there's a couple like I really like I know this is I know you'll cover West Virginia day to day, but I I really think Neil Brown's set to surprise some people this year. Um, that team is a lot better than we thought it was a season ago with kind of the way some of the final scores went out in some close games. And I really like what they bring back. And Baylor's another team like I think we're all dismissing Baylor after Matt Rule departed. But Charlie Brewer is going to be in a system that fits him much better this year. Um, they're going to kind of combine the spread with Larry Fedora with kind of a little bit what LSU did last year. And it's going to resemble a lot what Charlie did at um, Lake Travis high school, deep cut here, uh, Texas high school football. <laughs> um, they're one of, they were a state champion when Charlie was there. Lake Travis is obviously the same school that produced Baker Mayfield, but he set high school records that year. I think he completed 78% of his passes uh, his senior year of high school. And in the time since, he hasn't really been in a system that fit him all that well. Matt Rule employed a really pro-style scheme that asked Charlie to make a lot of inside runs. He's a smaller guy. He got beat up. Like, he wasn't always 100%. And this year's going to look a lot different. And that defense with Dave Renacon plays is going to be just fine, despite the fact they lost nine starters. I think Baylor could surprise a lot of people. And I realize I'm just, like, rattling it off teams. But mm. TCU is another one, man. Like, I really like what TCU brings back, especially defensively. Got a lot of young playmakers. Zachary Evans is going to make a huge difference right away. If Max Duggan can be a little less inconsistent and up his accuracy 5 to 8%, and that Sonny Cumbie doug Meacham marriage kind of works out for a second time, I think TCU could easily work its way into the Big 12 championship game mix. It's just, I think the Big 12 is the deepest league by a pretty significant margin among the Power 5 teams, and it's just going to be a really interesting year altogether. 
I'd like to unpack a few things here, but let's go back to your top four. Uh, quickly run down your, your weaknesses for Texas, Iowa State, Oklahoma State. What are you concerned about? Uh, Oklahoma State, I think it's obvious. Um, but I'm curious, like, what, what, what nits you would pick with Texas and Iowa State? Yeah, Oklahoma State, it's the offensive line um, after losing so much experience. That it's not the head coach? Well, I think the head coach is the strength when it's just coaching. Uh, if it comes down to a relationship with players and putting his foot in his mouth, uh, it'd be a different conversation. But um, mm-hmm. right now, I think it is the offensive line. They've lost two starters within the last uh, month mm-hmm. unexpectedly. And Spencer Sanders is going to have to be a lot uh, more consistent. He had a lot of turnover issues last year. I think he'll yeah. be better, but... I, that is my concern with Oklahoma State. Plus the defense, Jim Knowles has been okay since he arrived from Duke, but um, that unit is yet to kind of find its footing. Um, Texas, it really just comes down to the fact, well, two things. One, it's the coordinators haven't had time to install their schemes yet. Like This is all just like hope that this is going to work and Mike Yersich is going to fix the offense and Chris Ash is going to fix the defense right away. Um, and you have to really hope Texas can stay healthy because that defense was devastated by it last year. And Texas also, like, and I live here, so I follow this. They have very, very little depth at linebacker. Um, West Virginia actually struck a pretty big blow to Texas, um, I think, last week when they landed Tony Fields Mm -hmm. in Arizona. That was a guy Texas wanted pretty badly. but um, And they just needed the linebacker depth. Right now it's, like, almost – uh, there's almost no depth to speak of there. And if injuries pop up like they did a year ago, Texas is going to be a lot of trouble um, at linebacker. And then um, when you come to Iowa State, I just Iowa State is a really, really solid football team. But at the end of the day, I think there's a baseline talent level everybody has to hit to kind of uh, potentially contend for a Big 12 championship or contend for championships. I still, I still do wonder if Iowa State's going to have enough playmakers on the outside, I really love Charlie Kohler at tight end with Brock Purdy. Um, and if that offensive line is going to be good enough this year to kind of allow that offense to function the way it should. Um, I think I have less questions about Iowa State than the other three, but I think the talent is more just of a general baseline talent is more of the question names. I talked to a friend of mine who works in the conference and some some ops people and coaches, and they like Iowa State for this, this general premise about the season where um, – Everything we talked about, prep's going to be hard. If you didn't get spring football, if you have new coordinators, whatever, um, it's going to be hard to get your stuff in, and less will be more. You're going to have fewer um, fewer windows of practice to really drill into something new and to put something else in because you're going to want to be working on what you're definitely taking into the game. This is pretty obvious stuff, too, but uh, get, get good at what you can get good at and don't worry about other stuff. But what that might mean is that late on in the schedule, it could be just a battle of film and, and who understands what the other team does best. And if you've got a really good defense, you're going to shut down what the other team does. And that's going to even things out as far as talent disparities go. And again, you might not have a lot of opportunity to have game to game variation with game plan, personnel formations, et cetera. And if you've got a good defense and you have a solid plan on offense, can their offense be talented enough to overtake the other team? I don't know, especially if we're talking vanilla versus vanilla, but if their defense is going to be able to lock in on certain things. And they play that funky defense that gives spread offenses trouble. Um, that kind of separates them a little bit. I think that what we're talking about, it certainly applies to a lot of teams, but I'm, I'm on I'm on offense of them. Does it help them or does it hurt them? Does it elevate their talent? Does it bring maybe less talented teams up toward them? I look at their final three games, which is probably when you're thinking this film versus film takes effect. Kansas State, Texas, West Virginia. 
probably more talented than two of those teams, but that Texas game in between, that could be a significant game at the end of the season. And if it's just what we know about you and can we stop it, that makes that pretty intriguing. I think it's a fun dynamic for the season. I think I think you actually bring, you bring up a great point, first of all, with kind of the coaching staffs that are more stable and um, very good at what they do or advantage. And I think Iowa State certainly fits in that category. John Heacock is as good as there is oh, yeah. the as a defensive coordinator. Um, he's brilliant. And some of the schemes they've come up with the last couple of years have been really influential, not only in college football, but the NFL. Um, I, I do like listening to you talk it makes me like Iowa State even more just simply because of the fact at the end of the day I think a great quarterback is the equalizer and to me Brock Purdy and Sam Ellinger are one two in the conference um heading into the year and I think Brock from a pure passing standpoint is probably the best in the league he just makes things happen and I am perfectly happy putting money down on Brock Purdy to kind of make this work this year. And same thing with Matt Campbell and the same thing with John Heacock. So you might have just you might have just talked me into moving Iowa State into my up my projected standards <laughs> as talking through this. Let's look at the bottom. Um we don't need to do a lot of West Virginia, but Kansas State, Texas Tech, Kansas. Um I was surprised that Kansas State got as much credit as they did in the preseason. I think this is a bad year to re- be replacing five offensive linemen. And they're replacing five offensive linemen. Always questions about their skill, talent, and offense. Typically, they they do better than expectations. But, you know, Skylar Thompson, I kind of feel like he is what he is. They're plugging some holes in the running game. Do they have playmakers? And what do they have on defense? I don't know about them. I was surprised. I thought they could actually take a step back from a pretty good first season with a pretty good head coach, which maybe is the benefit of the doubt there. Yeah, I think... I, like... I, I was go, going to say, I was gonna say, I think at the end of the day, you just really trust Cliff Kleinman. He's won everywhere he's gone. He won right away. In the Big 12, where I, I certainly thought they were going to struggle last year, and they made it work. Um, so okay. I think that's just faith in kind of the coaching staff there, honestly. Also, um, Wyatt Hubert, um, their defensive yep. end, is one of just the best in the country. So they do have something to work with over there. Texas Tech, Bowman, he's lit it up when he's played, just hasn't played a lot. They have some good outside players, pretty good running back. They get Jack Anderson back. They have an all-conference caliber center, and they've sneakily recruited pretty well in two classes, which is kind of a, a saying something for a guy who's coming in with the runway he had. And they maybe added some transfers to help. Their defense could be okay. They missed some players, but that's a team that I can't get my thumb on. And then Kansas, Chris, <laughs> I kind of like Kansas. What's wrong with me? Oh, interesting. I I really like, I like Kansas a little more next year. Uh, okay. I really, I don't think Kansas is going to be very good at quarterback. I just, I don't see it happening. Puka's going to have to be. Puka, yeah. I mean, Puka is unreal. Like He is one of the best running backs, uh, no stop, and kind of college football. But I, I just don't know how much he's going to be able to carry next season by himself, Like especially in a schedule that is just all Big 12 play. I really think yeah. Kansas is going to struggle. Texas Tech? The more Texas I've read Tech. about them, the more I've liked them. Yeah, Texas Tech is really interesting. Like The record last year, 4-8, and eight, didn't look great. But if I if I'm remembering correctly, like the last like seven weeks, I'm looking at it now. They lost to Baylor in overtime. They lost to Iowa State by possession. They lost to Kansas by possession. Lost to TCU by possession. They lost to Kansas State by possession. They beat West Virginia and they got blown out by Texas at the end of the year. And that Texas game was weird. Just kind of leaning back on it. So the, Texas Tech was a little closer than I think we all thought. And Alan Bowman, if he's healthy, is a top tier. I don't know about top tier, but he's a top. 
he's one of the five best quarterbacks in the Big 12, I would say, <laughs> if healthy. And when you've got a guy like that and a system like that that's so well, so predicated on what the passer and the quarterback can do, I think you have a shot. And they did add a lot of people in the transfer portal this offseason. They really plugged some holes. And Matt Walls is a really good coach. Like, the Big 12 has a lot of really good coaches. I'd like yeah. to point out that. But, like, I really... I don't know if I'd pick Texas Tech any better than eighth, personally, but, like, I think Texas Tech, if you stuck them in the ACC, would probably be a bowl team. Like, I think Texas Tech is pretty decent. Maybe I'm being biased based on where I live, but, like, I don't think this Texas Tech team is going to be horrible. I think every game in the Big 12 this year is going to be difficult outside of some Kansas games, and even those games might surprise you if Puka kind of breaks out and their quarterback plays a little different. So I just, I really think this is a really deep league, and it's going to be tough for everybody. I just want to be clear. I'm not expecting Kansas to be good, but I just kind of like the <laughs> potential. Like if they, the quarterback, you're right. Is it McVitie? Is it Kendrick? I don't know. It doesn't even matter. I also don't know. And guess what? 22 eyeballs on Puka. That's going to be hard for him to do stuff, but they've got good receivers. Their line could be okay. And frankly, they just, they have some guys that's now we're never for. They've recruited so many transfers that if it doesn't work this year, then, you know, you skip ahead again and maybe they'll be better off next season. But it does think- seem like they should be okay on offense, and like their their offense was such a mess last year because of their coordinator situation, which now they have settled, and the guy's been there for, you know, I mean, going on what eleven months now. Maybe it works, I don't know, but they they gave teams trouble last season. They weren't deep enough or good enough to finish. But can they be better because they're a year older? I don't know, but I don't I don't think it's typical with David Beatty, Kansas though. Yeah, Brent Brent Deerman, I agree, and. Les Miles is, I think Kansas was a lot better than even their record showed last year. They made different strides. But it's never a good sign. I don't remember the exact quote, but Brett Deerman said something to the effect of they are going to be better at quarterback in 2021 when the freshman class comes out <laughs> this year. And whenever, whenever you're talking about your quarterback like that in like April, it's not a great sign for how the season's going to go. Some teams can say that with relative assurances because they recruit so well. But when you're Kansas, that's that's probably not going to be a good light on the situation, too. Um, yeah, not, not great. Let's wrap, let's wrap up here. Spin forward. Um, we've talked a little bit about testing, and, and I know that's something you've been working on and trying to figure out, as many others are, how this is going to work. Um, that's one thing where the NCAA did kind of lead, maybe a little bit later than they should have, but certainly put out parameters. The SEC more or less followed it. Um, the Big 12, it sounds like, may do something very similar here, but for fans of West Virginia listening to this and, and are worried about how accurately, how adequately can they test? What do you think, what do you know about Big 12 mandates? Yeah, test testing is going to be super interesting the next um, couple of weeks. Um, the Big 12 is mandating that teams test three times a week. Um, for most schools, that will be some combination of Sunday or Monday, Wednesday or Thursday, and then ideally, if the Big 12 has its way, on game day or the night before game day um, to get it turned around as quickly as possible. I think right now the Big 12 is hoping they can have some sort of rapid testing centralized at every venue ahead of the game so they have testing immediately before kickoff to ensure that there are no positives on the field. And I want to point out no testing is perfect. Uh, Rapid testing particularly has issues. Um, Sometimes they hang out in the 70-80% range for accuracy. Um, that's why, um, the kind of the standard testing wise is the PCR test, which is the really invasive nasal swab. I'm sure some of y'all have already experienced, and those are expensive, like 50 to a hundred dollars a test. And essentially these schools are basically left up to their own devices to kind of figure out testing. 
Um, Texas has kind of been trying to help organize testing for other schools um, from a third party perspective. I think a really big key for Big 12 programs is going to be to find a third party lab to partner with uh, each week to make sure you get results back on time. Because testing time, wait times have kind of improved the last couple of weeks, but in some parts of the country, you're still waiting seven to 10 days to get your test result back. And obviously that's not going to work if you're trying to play, if you have to have a test done 72 hours before game day. So big 12 teams are spending a lot of money to kind of ensure that they are partnered with the lab that can kind of um, ensure them results as quickly as possible and a quick turnaround time. Cause right now, like testing is honestly like a big part of your game planning. Like the only way you're going to be able to fill out your depth chart or, Kind of figure out who you're going to game plan around as if to know if that player is going to be available to go and the only way that happens is through accurate and rapid testing so every team in this league is kind of grappling with um, getting tests back quickly and that standard's only going to be ramped up ahead of the season when they're going to have to test three times a week chris i think i speak for everybody listening um you put on the big shoes and you burst your feet through them so uh you filled in admirably my friend i really appreciate the time hanging out here um Check him out. Chris underscore Hummer. By the way, how bummed out were you when you tried to sign up for Twitter and there was a Chris Hummer out there? You know, I think I was just like early in there and I was just like, I took the underscore because I thought it was a cool thing to do. And now I'm bummed out. I'm stuck with an underscore is basically how it works. But no numbers, though. So that's good. Like Chris Hummer eight or whatever. That'd be, eh, be unusual. You'd have to have a feeling there. But anyways, at Chris underscore Hummer, our national writer filling you in, uh, not just on COVID, but certainly Big 12, national football. Uh, follow him online. One of our many writers in that growing team there uh chris great as always thank you for your time yeah for sure thanks for having me on man and uh i'm sure all your listeners are going to be very happy to have chris's voice back next week well he won't be gone we'll get another chris in hopefully on friday so <laughs> keep this going and i'll just tell him he's not that viable but chris we'll see how it goes though but uh thanks again man hang in there you too man thanks